Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 72, August 1st to August 7th, 1862. Last week, we talked about the Battle of Moore's Mill in Missouri. We also had a check-in on Grant and what is about to start unfolding in his neck of the woods, as well as the capture and arrest of Bell Boyd. This week, we will look at a few events, including a battle at Baton Rouge. I want to also really get into an event that we have already mentioned a few times in the Confederate Conscription Acts. Before we really get going, though, I do want to mention that we have upcoming Patreon content, so we are going back to a memoir review, and this one is going to be Rebel Private Front and Rear. It's another one on the iconic list of Civil War memoirs, and this particular memoir is going to talk a lot about the Seven Days, Second Manassas, things that are either in the past, in the rear view, or are coming up soon. So if that sounds like something that interests you, we will be posting that soon. And once again, your support for the show is greatly appreciated. Now let's set up the campaign for Second Manassas. So let's take a minute to talk about the strategic situation back in Virginia. As we know, McClellan has not yet withdrawn his forces from the peninsula, but he is soon going to be ordered to withdraw after his aborted attempt to switch the focus to Petersburg. John Pope is the reason he is still hanging out at Harrison's Landing. Pope had now taken command of what was called the Army of Virginia. His force would be made up of three corps, the first by Franz Siegel, the second by Nathaniel Banks, and the third by Irvin McDowell. These would include the veterans of the Valley Campaign, but also fresh troops that needed discipline. Pope would be the one to try to provide said discipline, often referred to as harsh. We can be somewhat sympathetic to Pope, as I have seen it pointed out that he wanted to make sure his army would fight and not be fearful of Lee and especially Stonewall Jackson. This would make sense, especially in the case of Jackson, because many of his men had already been victimized by him in the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1862. The Republican Pope was also a great tool for the changing nature of the war that we already talked about and probably the reason why McClellan wrote his letter to the president. Three general orders would change much for the citizens of Northern Virginia. One would call for the burning of any house suspected of guerrilla activity, so if a shot came from that vicinity, it would be dealt with accordingly. The Army of Virginia would also live off the country, taking from the citizens of Northern Virginia which would exact a heavy toll. Outrage was felt by the Confederacy for these orders, and Pope was attacked in the press, being called a villain of humanity. 
this is interesting how it does mark a change in the war effort. The Union Army is getting frustrated with continual guerrilla activity. Oftentimes it's downplayed in the histories of the war, but pretty much everywhere across the southern states there's some kind of guerrilla activity. And part of how these irregular soldiers are being supplied are through local citizens. So kind of killing two birds with one stone, obviously taking a harsher stance on the guerrillas themselves in terms of execution or any kind of reprisal, but they're also taking away any kind of potential food source that they could live off of. Remember, it's not too far away from the Partisan Ranger Act of the Confederacy. Pope would be promised the reinforcements from McClellan, who would start to send his men north, but certainly would drag his feet in doing so. He did not like Pope and wanted to see him fail. Hearing that he would soon engage Jackson must have put a smile on the face of Little Mac. But why was he going to face Jackson? Let's talk about that for a second. Jackson was sent by Lee to Gordonsville in order to protect the railroad line there. You see, Lee still had a problem. Pope could come down from the north and attack in concert with McClellan, threatening the capital again after it had just been saved. Lee also did not know where Burnside's Ninth Corps was going to come from, moving from North Carolina. It could go toward McClellan or Pope, or even a third location. Waiting to see what the Union Army had in mind would be the best action. Pope, in the meantime, would launch cavalry raids in an attempt to destroy the Central Railway. One such raid capturing a young captain by the name of John Singleton Mosby. This raid was actually conducted by Judson Kilpatrick, who you will remember was at Big Bethel. Mosby would be exchanged and provide valuable intelligence for Lee. He would inform the general that Burnside was on his way to join Pope in the north, and so too would the Army of the Potomac. With this knowledge in his pocket, Lee would start to shift units north to deal with the vagrant Pope, but we are getting ahead of ourselves just a tad. So I actually mentioned how Earl Van Dorn is coming up with a plan that involves taking a shot at the Union Army in Louisiana as well as Mississippi. Sterling Price would be on his way to join Van Dorn, and together they would move on the area around Corinth, attempting to retake that city for the south. While the forces gathered for this portion of the offensive, there would be a simultaneous move to ultimately retake New Orleans. Leading these troops would be John C. Breckinridge, former vice president. Breckinridge would have two divisions, one commanded by Daniel Ruggles, who you recall was called to join the Army of Mississippi prior to the Battle of Shiloh, with those troops who were garrisoning New Orleans. Breckinridge also had under his command Charles Clark, already a veteran of the Battle of Shiloh. Clark was an Ohio-born Mississippi native 
who will go on to be the Confederate governor of that state. Also present was Benjamin Helm, who was Lincoln's brother-in-law, married to Mary Todd Lincoln's half-sister. Helm will go on to command the Orphan Brigade, made up of Kentucky regiments in the service of the Confederacy. On paper, the Confederate forces were some 5,000, but illness meant that the combat effectives would be half that number. Still, they would proceed with the offensive as planned. To get to New Orleans, though, they would need to retake Baton Rouge. Now the question arises, why hasn't Benjamin Butler made any further gains after capturing New Orleans and subsequently capturing Baton Rouge, which was actually done by the U.S. Navy? We can actually answer that question by looking at Pope's new measures in Virginia. There's an increase in guerrilla activity that's going to hamper Butler from moving out of New Orleans. So this is another one of those areas where the Union Army is starting to get fed up with those kind of irregular tactics. They're so fed up, in fact, that Benjamin Butler will put a bounty on the heads of these guerrillas. So that really does go to show exactly what a nuisance they were. Baton Rouge, we mentioned, surrendered relatively without a fight, following Farragut's push beyond New Orleans earlier in 1862. Rather, it had been claimed by the U.S. Navy, the mayor refusing to surrender. Using it as a way station for assaults on Vicksburg, Farragut actually ordered firing on the town following Confederate guerrilla activity, which saw a civilian killed. That also goes to show exactly how much of a nuisance these guerrillas were, even to the Union Navy, especially with the river fleet. They're constantly harassing their shipping lines. Despite claiming the town, the guerrillas had occupied the city as a result of there being no garrison there. General Thomas Williams would be placed in command of infantry, some 2,500 men, and they would occupy Baton Rouge. Williams was a New York native who attended West Point and had served in a variety of capacities already for the U.S. Army. Despite his experience having served against the Seminoles and in the war with Mexico, his men, on the other hand, were inexperienced, especially when compared with their rebel counterparts, already familiar with campaign and battle. Williams and his troops had recently attempted to cut a canal near Vicksburg, so they were more accustomed to labor than firing their weapons. There were still seven total regiments, which included the mostly Irish 9th Connecticut. Van Dorn laid out a pretty solid plan with Breckenridge. Confederate ground forces would attack from the east, pushing the Union troops into the river. Meanwhile, the CSS Arkansas would steam downriver, destroy whatever Union vessels that were stationed at Baton Rouge, and then pound the enemy infantry. Just like that, Baton Rouge would be retaken, and then the tables could be turned on the Union forces occupying New Orleans. Confederate commanders liked their odds against the U.S. Navy. There were only four vessels, and three of them were timber-clad ships. The USS Essex was there, the sole city-class ironclad, but the CSS Arkansas 
had already dealt with a city class and survived unscathed, so a one-on-one matchup seemed preferable. The only problem was that the commander of the Arkansas, Lieutenant Brown, was ill and not on board when requested to head downriver. Despite making an effort to catch up with her before she disembarked, Lieutenant Brown would not make it in time. Lieutenant Henry Stevens would command the Arkansas. Doubly unfortunate was that the chief engineer was also not aboard. Despite Brown's instructions to stay put until he got there, the CSS Arkansas would move out, not to return. Breckenridge would form up his men in a single line of battle on August 5th. He actually had declined to attack previously because he feared fire from the Union gunboats. Assured that the Arkansas would arrive in time, Breckenridge set up with Clark and Ruggles, commanding their respective divisions to the north and the south. Williams was able to set up a sort of defense as the Confederates had made contact with the Federal pickets, but were driven away. Union troops would set up in two lines, the second of which was actually in the city. Facing pressure, the first were the withdraw after some fierce fighting. Breckenridge would regroup and renew the assault on the second line, which had been bolstered with any reserve troops that were available. An assault by the 30th Louisiana would face destruction at the hands of Federal artillery. Fighting grew desperate. Thomas Williams would ride forward, realizing that his troops were bereft officers, many of them having been killed or wounded during the fighting. While leading them around Magnolia Cemetery, Williams would be mortally wounded. Colonel Thomas Cahill would take over and pull the inexperienced northerners back toward the river. Spotters would move on top of the state house in order to direct artillery fire, which kept the rebels at bay. Realizing his worst fear for the assault, Breckenridge would break off and withdraw. General Clark had been wounded during the fighting and would later be captured. Helm as well was wounded, showing the ferocious fighting. In fact, there were some 400 casualties on part of the Union with 450 Confederates. Nearly 20% of the combatants had been killed, wounded, or captured during the assault. Despite not taking the city, Confederate commanders were satisfied with the result as Benjamin Butler would pull back the small force and leave the city undefended for some time. He would return, though, with almost 10,000 men and reoccupy. From then on out, Baton Rouge would be kept in Federal hands for the remainder of the war. The Confederate attack had failed because the Union Navy was able to fire on the rebels before they were able to make the final push. But why were they allowed to do so? Where had the CSS Arkansas been during the fighting? Well, remember when I said the chief engineer was not on board? That was not simply for my good health. Lieutenant Stevens had been overeager to get the ship underway, and she experienced several mechanical failures. In fact, she needed to be secured to the shore on the night of August 5th while she coaled and repaired the engines. All the while, she was a sitting duck for the USS Essex, who would steam north on the river on August 6th in search of the enemy ironclad. 
Stevens would attempt to make a break once he sighted the enemy vessel, but the engines, which were overworked, again failed, and the CSS Arkansas would drift and become lodged in a perpendicular fashion on the river. The USS Essex would open fire on the enemy ship, while Stevens would only be able to return fire with two stern guns. What was more, there were additional enemy ships who would be soon approaching. Options for Stevens were clear. He could either destroy the Arkansas, or he could risk her being captured by the U.S. Navy. Reportedly, he had tears streaming down his face when he gave the order for the crew to abandon ship. Guns were loaded, and there was a fire set on board. From the shore, the crew watched as the ironclad drifted downstream, the fire finally reaching the powder magazine, causing a great explosion. In one day, the Union had parried a thrust at an occupied city, as well as destroyed the best weapon the Confederate Navy had on the Mississippi River. There are a lot of ifs involved with the Confederate Navy in the Mississippi River Valley. I mentioned them briefly when we talked about the Arkansas disabling the Carondelet. We have talked in previous episodes that Stephen Mallory, for instance, was more concerned with ironclads because it was a numbers game, quality over quantity. If there had been one or two more ironclads present, how differently things may have turned out. I've seen it argued that the Confederates may have been working on a giant ironclad that would have rivaled anything the Union Navy could have put together. We will never know, but it is food for thought, and honestly, despite talking about how superior the U.S. Navy was, we can see how close a run thing it may have been if the cards were dealt just a tad differently. I want to close out this week by talking about something we have already mentioned once or twice. While we were fighting the Seven Days, the Confederates would unleash their first conscription act for the lack of manpower. This was evidence for McClellan to grow even more cautious and inflate the numbers he thought would be lined up against him even more. This law had gone into effect in April, the first conscription act. We have already mentioned how the South had an extreme disadvantage when it came to manpower. There were not many major destinations for immigrants, save New Orleans, so there was not a large pool of individuals from that population to pull from. They would not venture to explore arming slaves, at least not until they were very desperate. The issue would arise over the enlistment periods. Many of the enlistment periods for the soldiers in the Confederate Army were coming up some of these had originally been a year or less. Now the South shared the same problems that Lincoln would see in the North. Ordinary people would grow less than enthusiastic with the war effort, especially as it dragged on longer than expected. This is why Lincoln would call for even more volunteers, so as to bolster the ranks. Already in December, the Confederate government had organized a bounty system, which included a $50 bonus as well as a 60-day furlough. This meant that the soldiers could go home, 
and that anybody joining up would receive $50. Now why exactly would that be important? You could go home and give your family the money or help out your family in the meantime, especially if you were taking advantage of this bounty system. If you could go home and give that money to your family, there are a lot of accounts from Confederate soldiers about how they have misgivings about being in the army when their family and their home are unprotected, especially as the Union armies continue to occupy more and more Southern territory. Likewise, the men in the army could join up with whatever unit they wished, and they could elect their own officers. These measures we have already mentioned, and several of the memoirs talked about them as well. All of this would not be enough. Confederate conscription would go into effect in April of 1862. The original age frame would be males from the age of 18 to 35, although later acts would expand that age to as old as 45. We talked about Belle Boyd last episode. Well, her father was in his 50s and had enlisted to fight in the Stonewall Brigade. This would be considered old for the time. In 1860, the life expectancy for the average male was right around 40, which gives you an idea of how desperate the Confederates were becoming. Opposition to this act was plentiful. Obviously, there were states with areas still loyal to the Union or otherwise not interested in fighting a war. Sometimes these places would prove hostile. Some state governors, including Zebulon Vance of North Carolina and Joseph Brown of Georgia, would even go so far as to expand the exempt lists. Speaking of these exempt lists, there were those who would be able to avoid being drafted. Of course, there were skilled laborers, teachers, and clergy. If one had money, they would be able to pay a substitute to join in their stead leading to the accusation of the war being for the rich, but fought by the poor. In reality, these men were often bounty jumpers themselves, so they would desert at the first opportunity. We can actually go all the way back to our first couple of episodes to talk about the political opposition to conscription. Governors like Vance and Brown would take the side of Jefferson and his Democratic Republicans. A draft is a mighty use of power by the federal government. Jefferson, of course, aligned himself closer with the rights and the power residing with the individual states. There were those who argued against this view, seeing the additions to the army as necessary if the South was to win the war. Indeed, there would be no independence, some argued, if the sacrifice was not made. Eventually, the southern people would show even more opposition, as a rule would make it so owning 20 or more slaves would also qualify for exemption. In the first couple of episodes, we talked about how there are only a certain percentage of white southerners who actually own slaves, and that of that percentage, it's even fewer who have say as many as 20, this we can consider to be the kind of 
southern aristocracy, the planting class, right? So this would be the upper echelon of that society, the extremely rich, which obviously continues to add into that disclaimer that the war is fought for the rich by the poor, right? I saw it concluded that by 1864, the draft in the South could not be enforced. It would be in that year that the act would be repealed. Lincoln and his administration would also lay out conscription and a draft much in the same framework as Davis had with the Confederacy. If you think it went over better than it did for the rebels, then you have obviously not seen gains of New York. Buckle in, though, because we will get there soon enough in our narrative. We can stop for now. This week, we talked a little about what is going on in Virginia and started to set up the second Manassas campaign. We had a Confederate attempt to take Baton Rouge and the scuttling of the CSS Arkansas. Closing out this week, we mentioned the Confederate Conscription Act Next week, we will have a good couple of smaller events, including Jackson hitting banks again at Cedar Mountain. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.